Okay. Well, we uh, missed a week last week. I hear you ladies had a good time in here. This guy's pigged out in the other room. And uh, I'm kind of sorry I missed some of the things that you ladies got to share about. But, but we'll have to hear some of that stuff another time. I'm going to pass these study sheets out. I have no idea whether this study sheet will apply for next week or not, but I have a hunch it won't, <laughs> given what we have to do uh, <clears throat> today. But at any rate, uh, if you work through that study sheet uh, over the next week or so, you'll be at least a little bit ahead of us uh, in uh, what we're doing. But, <clears throat> but we are going a little slower than I anticipated uh, in, this, uh, in this whole section. And... Uh, and we're not going to go real fast today, as Rick intimated in his prayer. The passage that we're going to start looking at today is absolutely fraught with difficulties. <laughs> so uh, we'll wrestle with them to some degree. I, I am thankful that I had a week off, which gave me an extra week to uh, spend in preparation. Uh, but even that is not enough. And uh, even late last night and early this morning, I was checking commentaries and checking this and checking that, trying to trying to wrestle through some little nuance or something of some verb or some word or whatever. So at any rate, it's just a very difficult passage, and uh, we're going to tackle it. I'm not going to try to burden you with everything and every option and every possibility and every answer for every option and every possibility, because really the objective of our study is to seek and find application. So, to some degree, as we go through the passage today, my, my intent is to share with you uh, a little bit of, what you, uh, uh, of some of the difficulties that we do wrestle with in the passage, but I plan to tell you what I think and, and operate on the basis of what I think the passage says. And, uh, and uh, that's not necessarily to declare from on high that you have to accept my interpretation but we'll never get anywhere <laughs> if we just sit and debate this back and forth because quite literally on some of the issues that we're going to talk about today, they have been debated since before the church was created. <laughs> so these are difficult issues uh, that commentators and theologians going all the way back to the ancient Hebrews have wrestled with. And uh, so I'll, I'll uh, explain to you why uh, I reached the conclusions I do. And, uh, and I hope that those will be satisfactory to you. But if they're not, I understand. You may have uh, another perspective on some of the things that we'll talk about. But what I really am after, uh, I started to mention, what I'm really after is the application. What I'm really after is what's, what's the meaning of this for us in our lives? So uh, we can uh, debate issues all day long on some things, but ultimately we have to ask ourselves, why did God write this? And you know, what difference does it make for me? So that's ultimately what I'm shooting for. <clears throat> but before we go into today's passage, which is beginning in chapter 6, and, and we'll, we'll look at the first, uh, <clears throat> oh, maybe the first eight verses or so. We'll see how far we get. Originally, I was going to try to do 12. I know I won't get that far, but we'll see how far we get. But before we do that, when we were last together, we were talking about the last part of chapter 5. What do you remember? that we've talked about uh, in the last few times we were together. I know. <clears throat> we've got all these people with Alzheimer's in here and we're going back two weeks. I know I'm pressing it, but 
But Rick first and then Dave. Uh huh. Uh, Enoch, Noah, and the Levitical priest. Uh huh. Yeah. Each each person's walk with God is unique. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, David. Did they have birthday cakes when the grandkid turned 700, I wonder? <laughs> yeah. And it really is, a, it really it makes us think about the continuity of the whole message of redemption as it comes down from Adam and is passed to generation to generation. And because of that tremendous overlap, <coughs> the continuity that was given. And, that, and, and one thing we didn't really talk about <coughs> is is the importance that puts upon us. Since we only live 70, 80, 90 years, uh, if all goes well for us, and, and we only see our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, uh, we only have a brief period of time in which to ensure the continuity of the faith in the generations that follow us. They had hundreds and hundreds of years. We only have 60 or 70 years to ensure the continuity of the faith in the generations that follow us, and somebody has said <clears throat> at some time that that at any given point the church is only one generation away from extinction. Uh, it has to be passed on uh, from one generation to the next, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today, and and some of the things we have to wrestle with in that issue. But so, well, let's go on then into chapter six, and uh, and we'll just start reading in verse uh, one. And we'll read down through verse 8. I'm sure we won't get any further than that. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? Well, just... uh, by way of introduction and to kind of get our bearings here again, we need to remember, one of the things we need to keep in mind as we 
study through Genesis, and particularly when we come to some of these very difficult passages like this passage that we're going to look at today. One of the things we need to remember and keep in mind is to whom and why was the book of Genesis written? And the silence is intended as a question. <laughs> okay, so the ch- it was written to the children of Israel, written primarily, first of all, for the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and for what reason? Okay, okay. To prepare them for their entry into the promised land, and also because they're coming out of, excuse me, because they're coming out of Egypt. As they're coming out of Egypt, they're coming out uh, really pretty mixed up. They're coming out, they're, they are uh, coming out with many of the traditions of the Egyptians and ideas and concepts and even some of the religion of the Egyptians they're bringing with them. And they've intermingled that with their Hebrew faith, okay, with, their, uh, with the true faith. That's all intermingled and it's all polluted. And God, as we saw when we studied that section in, in Genesis there, I mean in Exodus, when we studied that section about Mount Sinai, that God brought them to Himself and His idea was to set them apart as a people for Himself. And so one of the things that God is doing in, in giving to the children of Israel in the wilderness the entire Pentateuch, the entire five books, first five books of the Bible, but particularly Genesis is what we're looking at, God's purpose in giving that to them is to purify them of all this junk that they brought out of Egypt, to purify for Himself this people in the wilderness, and then to prepare them as they're getting ready to enter into the into Canaan land, into the Promised Land, to prepare them so that they will be able to remain pure and remain true to Him in the context of this place they're going that is just filled with all kinds of other pagan religions and pagan practices and pagan worldviews and that sort of thing. So the idea of Genesis is, one of the purposes of Genesis is to, is to purify these people, to cleanse them of all this false junk that they've got and to reorder their entire worldview so that they begin to see things as they truly are and as God sees them and to purge them of this pagan worldview that has polluted them. Keep that in mind as we go through this passage because as we study this passage and as we wrestle with the interpretation of this passage, one of the things we want to ask ourselves is what is the relevance of this passage to the children of Israel as they're wandering around in the wilderness? Okay, So, so keep that in mind. The passage, as I said, really is fraught with all kinds of, of difficulties. Uh, and, and we're going to confront those and talk about those uh, to one degree or another as we go through them. Remember, too, that we are now at the end of the uh, second Taladot of Genesis. Okay? The first Taladot was the, gener- was the account of the generations of the heavens and the earth, which really was the story of Adam and Eve beginning there in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, of course, is the prologue. Then beginning in chapter 2 is the first Taladot, the first account. And it's basically the story of, of, of Adam and Eve and, and the whole thing with Cain and Abel and then Cain's descendants. Okay? And then we begin at the beginning of chapter 5, we begin the second Taladot, the second account, and that's the generations of Seth. Okay? So all the way through chapter 5, we were following the line of Seth. Okay? And Seth represents the righteous line. 
Okay, He was the replacement. Remember, he was the replacement for Abel whom Cain killed. And God gave Seth as the replacement. And so Seth then represents, and his descendants represent this righteous line through whom this promised seed that will crush the serpent's head is, uh, is, is going to come. Okay, So we're very interested in this Sethite line. And so all the way through chapter 5, we've been following the Sethite line. At the end of chapter 4, we had the line of Cain. Remember, and we followed Cain through six generations. Uh, uh, and, he, and, and his line represents at that point the line of the unrighteous. So you have, at the end of chapter 4, you have the line of the unrighteous, who at this point is represented through Cain. Later on, it will be represented through Ishmael and... and, uh, and uh, uh, Jacob's brother Esau, I drew a blank there. Later it will be represented by other characters. But at, but at this point it was represented by Cain. And you have this contrast then in chapter 4 and chapter 5 between the unrighteous line, the descendants of Cain, and the righteous line, the descendants of Seth. Keep all of that stuff in mind as we look at this passage. Now we come to the end of this third, or excuse me, this second Toledot, this, the Toledot or the account of the generations of Seth. And, we've, and he's given us the details of the generations through chapter 5. All these individuals and how long they lived and, and who they, you know, who they were uh, the fathers of and all that sort of stuff. All the way through chapter 5 and we get to Noah. And then, be, then beginning in chapter 6, there's a division there. In chapter 6, of course, the chapter divisions are not inspired. They were stuck in there at, at a later date after the writing of Scripture. And it's really kind of infor- unfortunate because these first eight verses of chapter 6 really go with chapter 5. They are the conclusion, or they they are the ending comments to the second Toledot. Okay, so keep that in mind. They're really kind of the transition. They are uh, having given the list of these ten generations. Now uh, the narrator here is is getting ready to make his transition into the following Toledot, which is the generations of Noah, which begins in verse nine of chapter six. Okay, so chapter. The, the first eight verses of chapter 6 are really the transition from this Toledot or this account that we have been in regarding the descendants of Seth. It's a transition from that into the next Toledot, which is going to be primarily the story of the flood. Okay, And, uh, and so as we read these verses and we think about these verses, what we need to understand is that what, what the, the narrator here and Moses as he records it for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he's trying to communicate to us is to, to get us in a frame of mind to understand what's about to happen and why it is about to happen. And so that's what he's doing in these verses. So after now we have the, set, the, the Canaanite line that's... Canaanite as in the descendants of Cain, not the Canaanites, which are in Canaan later, but this is the Canaanite line, okay, the descendants of Cain. In contrast, uh, or we have the Canaanite line and then we have the Seth line and the thing we find about, out about these guys is all the way through is they were having kids. <laughs> they were having sons and daughters and they were intermarrying and so so over a period of time, we're talking about a period uh, approaching uh, 1,500 years or so now at this point, 1,600 years, whatever. Uh, we have this, uh, over this incredible amount of time, all these people being born, living long periods of life, having lots of kids. What we have is the explosive growth of population on the earth. We have no idea how many people lived on the earth at the time of the flood. But it could have equaled 
the population of the earth as it currently stands today. Okay, that's a possibility. Whether or not it was that many or not, we don't know. But it was a it was a it was a it was a uh, very clear that there was an explosive growth of population. Okay, and that is what he refers to then in verse one when he says that this <coughs> that the uh, uh, the uh, men were multiplying on the face of the earth and, of course, daughters were being born to them. I know that whole experience. I've had that happen to me. And uh, so, at any rate, daughters were being born to them. But then he starts, he goes in the next verse because what he's wanting to do, keep this in mind, is he's wanting us to understand the story that's about to follow, which is the story of the flood. And so the things that unfold in the transition here as he's transitioning towards the next Taladot, what he wants us to understand are, what are the reasons for the flood? Why was it necessary for God to bring this great cataclysmic judgment on the earth? Okay. And the first thing he tells us, uh, he really gives us two kind of primary factors that led to the corruption of the world and necessitated the flood. So later in the transition... Down as we get in the later verses, 6, 7, and 8, and down in that are 6, 7, 5, 6, 7. He talks a lot about the corruption and the wickedness of the world. But the question is, what are the things that led to that corruption? What are the things that led to that pollution of the world that necessitated the judgment of God? And the first thing he tells us is that the sons of God, uh, uh, let me get it here, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. So that's his first explanation. Second explanation. That's all you want to know about that, right? Well, okay. <clears throat> that, was, that was a gallant effort to get past trying to have to explain this verse. <laughs> um, but there are several questions, obviously, that just jump out to us in this verse. And the first one is, who in the world are the sons of God? Okay. Uh, we're, we're not even there yet, David. So just don't even rush the Nephilim. We'll get to the Nephilim. But first we've got to wrestle with the sons of gods and the daughters of men and, and, and all this sort of stuff. Okay. Well, there are historically three explanations for who the sons of God are. Okay. And, and basically these three different explanations, are very, all three of these explanations are very ancient. They go all the way back into Hebrew, uh, to the Hebrew scholars even back before, uh, as I said, before the birth of the church. So these things, go, these, these, these discussions that we're going to talk about today, they're ancient. They're old discussions, okay? And these three explanations for who are the sons of God uh, are an outgrowth of the way that phrase or that idea or that concept is used in Hebrew literature, okay? And it's used three different ways, okay? Which, uh, which brings, uh, is what causes part of the problem. And one of the first ways, and this is really a minority opinion, it's not held by very many people, the first suggestion is that the sons of God is a reference to, to uh, great princes of old, great, uh, you know, powerful political leaders of old, the great princes or kings of old, okay? Because on occasion, this idea or this term, the sons of God in Hebrew literature is used to refer to, to these great princes or great kingdoms or people over great kingdoms clear back in ancient times before the flood, okay? And so sometimes it is used to refer to those kind of people. And so the suggestion is that that's what he's referring to here. And so that what he's really saying in the verse is that these great these great royal high class princes of people were marrying the common the women from the common folk okay well 
There aren't many people who hold to that position. And one of the reasons is that gives absolutely no explanation for the flood. Uh, we, we may be a little opposed to interclass, interclass marriages, but it's hardly a reason to wipe out the entire population of the world. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's, uh, it, it, there aren't very many people, as I said, who hold to that particular interpretation. The second possible interpretation is that the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels. Okay, and uh, this is also a minority opinion, but it's m much more widely held uh, than the first one. And, and it's rooted in the fact that it's very clear that in Hebrew literature, and particularly in the Old Testament, we have some examples, for example, in the book of Job, in Job 1 and Job 2, where the term, the sons of God, is a reference to angels. Okay? And, and, and in other places as well, but particularly there is a passage that comes to my mind. And, and, in, the, and in the case in, in Job... It says the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And who came with them? Rick, can I interrupt for a second? No. Is it my imagination is much colder in this room? It's freezing in this room. <laughs> did, you, did you turn it down? Okay. Yeah. We have to keep in mind that people next door are also being affected by what we do with that thermostat. So. So. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is cold. I was thinking that earlier. I was thinking if I don't turn into a pillar of ice, <laughs> you know. So no, that's fine. I'm glad you did. If everybody else is as miserable as I, I stand right under it, so I just ignore how I feel. <laughs> but the the second explanation uh, is, uh, uh, or excuse me, we we're talking Satan. That was the question. Satan, who came in with him? Satan. So obviously, the sons of God can include the fallen angels. Okay, and uh, so it's clear that the that that term can refer to fallen angels. And so some people understand the passage here to be a reference to the fallen angels. And they buttress their position uh, using a passage in Jude okay, that refers to the activities of some of the fallen angels. And they think that the passage in Jude refers back to Genesis chapter 6. Okay? Now, I don't hold to that position, and I'll explain to you here in a minute why. Uh, the third position is really the majority position and even though it's the majority position, I'm going to align myself with it. <laughs> but uh, the majority position down through history has been that the sons of God are a reference to the descendants of Seth, to the Sethites. Okay? And I, as I was yesterday, I was just thinking, uh, as I wrestled through these various options, and as, and as I thought about them, I just sat down and I just started jotting down. What are the reasons, Rick, why you think it's the Sethites? Okay? And I came up with about... Uh, I don't know, eight or ten different reasons why as I look at the context and I look at the wording and I look at uh, the other passages in Scripture, why I come to the conclusion uh, that it is the Sethites. And, and, and I'm going to explain that to you because I think it's important for our interpretation and for our application of the passage, okay? which will become clear as we go forward today. Okay? But... Uh, and I'm just going to list these reasons to you quite quickly just to save time. The first one is that repeatedly throughout the Scripture, the righteous seed are referred to as God's children. Okay? So even though the specific term, the sons of God, I don't know is ever specifically that, that explicit term is used to refer to the children of God or to the righteous line. Uh, it's very clear that the righteous line, the, the, those who walk by faith, are repeatedly referred to as God's children throughout Scripture. Okay? The second thing is, 
in the context, it seems like the sons of God very likely is a reference to the seed of the woman. Okay, Because there's this contrast that establishes right there in Genesis chapter 3 when God pronounces his curse upon the serpent about this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it becomes clear as we go through Scripture that the seed of the serpent are the unbelievers and the seed of the woman are those who are righteous by faith and who are the children of God. Okay, So uh, <clears throat> that would be the second reason. The third reason is the sons of God, understanding the sons of God as men fits with the context of the passage. In the context of the passage, we have this contrast between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. That's the whole, from the end of chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5 and now into chapter 6. The context is this setting in contrast this, 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 the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth, the righteous line and the unrighteous line. And that's a theme which has already been set for us and we'll follow it, as I've said before, we'll follow it all the way through Genesis. It's a theme that was established right there in Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to be following that theme all the way through. So if that is in fact a major theme of Genesis and is in fact the theme that he's working on at this particular point in Genesis then it makes sense to understand that the sons of God is a reference to the descendants of Seth as he contrasts them with the daughters of men. Okay? Uh, the fourth reason, the concept of the existence of angels or even their creation has not even been remotely suggested up to this point in the story. There's been nothing said about angels up to now. So as we're going, as we start in Genesis chapter one, and we're now up into Genesis, nothing's been said about angels. There's been no suggestion that there are such a thing as angels. There's been no discussion of the creation of angels. None of that has been talked about. Okay, that comes up later. We'll run into it later in Genesis when we get to, for example, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. We'll begin to encounter the idea of angels. But up to this point, there's been no suggestion of angels. the next reason, fourth, fifth, whatever it is, angels are spirit beings. They're not physical. Okay, that's very clear. Scripture says they are, uh, they are spirits sent out to minister to the children of God, to the sons of God. Okay, so, uh, so we know quite clearly that, that, that angels are not physical beings. Now, they do at times take on a physical form, okay, but not permanently. Okay. So, for example, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the three men come to visit Abraham, we have the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord, and we have two angels with him, and they obviously have a physical form, uh, presumably temporal, temporal in nature. Okay. But in general, they are spiritual beings. Uh, fallen angels could not possibly generate a material form or the power of procreation. So, on their own, it would be impossible for a fallen angel to, of his own power and of his own might, create a material form. That creative power belongs to God alone. Okay. Uh, the next thing is that Jesus himself specifically said that angels do not marry. Okay. Remember, he said, uh, said when you get to heaven, you're going to be like the angels in heaven who are not married okay? or, or given in marriage. Okay. Uh, the fifth, uh, the next, uh, whatever I'm on, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it is. Uh, the term here where he says they took wives to themselves, the term here in Genesis refers explicitly to marriage and is only refers to marriage in any time it's used in the Old Testament. Okay? So it can only refer to marriage. It does not refer to a simple and immoral relationship. And that is in contrast 
to how the corresponding term in Jude is used. The current corresponding term in Jude is, is the term pornea. And so whatever it was that was going on in Jude, and whether or not that refers to the angels or not, which I don't think it does even in Jude, he's talking about an immoral relationship apart from marriage. What's quite clearly in Genesis, he's talking about a marriage relationship in contrast to Jude. Uh, the next thing that I'm mentioning Jude is that the complexity and the difficulty of the passage in Jude. The passage in Jude is another passage. It's extremely difficult to interpret. Okay, It's a very complex passage. So, to take a questionable interpretation of Jude to be the guidelines by which I will interpret Genesis makes my interpretation of Genesis questionable. Okay, So, uh, I would suggest that the interpretation of Jude uh, that is used to, to buttress the angel interpretation of Genesis is a questionable interpretation of Jude. So, that makes your interpretation not only of Jude questionable, but it makes your interpretation of Genesis questionable. Okay. And we don't have time, of course, to look at the passage in Jude. Uh, you'll have to do that on your own. And then lastly, and this will lead into our next point, is that the issue of intermarriage uh, becomes a very big issue to Israel. Okay, From the very outset, it becomes a very big issue to Israel. And... And so it makes the interpretation of this particular, uh, the, the interpretation of this passage as being, being the Sethite descendants particularly relevant to Israel. And this is what in my mind makes this, this interpretation, the interpretation of the sons of God being the, the descendants of Seth, superior to the understanding of angels or the understanding of it being princes, is that is that the, is not only the idea that the sons of God are princes, not only is, is that really provides no real explanation for the flood, it really has no relevance to Israel as they're wandering around in the wilderness. And one could say the same thing about the idea that the sons of God are angels. Okay? Uh, whatever the strength or weaknesses of that particular position are, and there are good credible people who hold to that position and good commentaries that hold to that position, Given that, the question I ask myself is what possible relevance does that bit of information have to Israel as it wanders around in the wilderness? And I go, I don't see any relevance. But if, in fact, it is the sons of God who are indiscriminately intermarrying, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, then it has a great deal of relevance to Israel as they wander around in the wilderness, as they leave Egypt and are preparing to enter into the promised land. Okay, Then it becomes particularly relevant and particularly powerful. So those are ten reasons, eight or ten reasons or so, that I see uh, why I prefer the understanding that, that the sons of God here are the Sethite line, Okay, the descendants of Seth. Okay, Now the question is, what were they doing? Well, it says that they were... They looked on the daughters of men, and men there could be either a general term referring to all men, or it could be a specific term referring to the descendants of Cain. Okay? It could be either. Okay? And I don't think it's necessary to decide. The passage still carries its force 
whether you see that as a reference to the descendants of all men, the, the, the daughters of all men or the daughters of the descendants of Cain. The passage still carries force and has powerful application for us today. Um, but they were married. Now, you'll notice how, it's, how they married and why they married. Okay? What's the, what, is it, what is it that led these sons of God, these descendants of Seth, to marry these women? They were beautiful. They were hot chicks. They were good looking. Okay. And which ones of them did they marry? Whomever they chose. Okay. So the gist of this passage, and it becomes clear in the next verse that the Lord is not pleased with this development. The gist of the passage is that the sons of God indiscriminately married any woman they chose just because she was a hot chick. Okay? That's to put it in the vernacular. Okay? In other words, the sons of God were in the habit of looking superficially at the women around them and choosing them based solely upon external evaluation. And they were marrying them indiscriminately. So they were marrying whomever they chose. And they might have been other descendants of Seth. Or they might have been other descendants of Cain or of any of these other people that lived during those days. But the point is that they were just picking them and choosing them themselves. Now what's interesting is this is the first discussion of marriage since Genesis chapter 2. And so this way of picking a wife is set really in stark contrast to the way a wife is selected in Genesis chapter 2, which is how? God chose. God brought. God created and formed a man, formed a woman for Adam and brought a woman for him that was suitable for him. Okay. And that is the way marriage was done under the plan that God established. God brings the woman. God makes the decision. God directs. But here we have the sons of Seth. The righteous line is picking superficially and it's just whomever they choose. And there seems to be no consideration at all here of what God thinks about this. What God thinks about this woman. It's all based on a superficial decision. And I think about the passage when, when Samuel is trying to find out who's going to be the next king of Israel, remember, and he goes to the sons of Jesse. And what does God say as Samuel looks at one after another after another of the sons of Jesse and goes, ah, this is the one, this is the one. What does God tell him? Man looks on the outside. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Okay. And the problem here is that the sons of Seth are looking on the outward appearance. They're giving no consideration to what it is that, that God has to say about this. And they're indiscriminately marrying. And obviously, one of the things they're doing is they're engaging in inter, into, into mixed marriage. And by mixed marriages, we mean they were marrying outside the faith. Now, God takes this very seriously. This is the first time we encounter this in the Scriptures, but it is certainly not the last. And we begin to pick up this theme of how important this issue is that the people of God not marry outside of the faith. 
so that when we get to the story of the patriarchs, which we will do eventually, and we start encountering Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what is the issue that keeps coming up when it comes time to pick a wife for those guys? Do you remember? What does Abraham tell his servant when he wants him to go find a wife for Isaac? Go back and find one from our folks, from our kin. Don't pick them from here, from among the Canaanites. Don't pick them from the people of the land. You go back to Haran and you pick one from our family. Okay? And then when Isaac wants a, wants a, a, a wife for Jacob, it's the same thing. Don't take, he tells Jacob, don't take a wife from the Canaanites. That's why they were so distraught over Esau's choice. Esau chose to take a wife from among the people. And, and, and Jacob, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Isaac says to Jacob, don't you do that. You go back and you get somebody from our family, i.e. from the righteous line. Okay? So this theme, this idea comes up. And then the consequences of not doing that also become clear in Scripture. So we get to the story of Solomon. And we read the story of Solomon and he starts so great and he ends so miserably. And the guy ends up involved in all kinds of idolatry and wickedness. This great, wisest man who ever lived. You think, how could somebody so wise end up involved in so much idolatry and evil? Why did it happen? Because of his pagan wives. His pagan wives influenced him in that direction. After the captivity... When the children of Israel come back from captivity after that 70 years in Babylon and then they're freed by the Persian king and they come back into, uh, they've come back into the promised land and some of them fall into the habit of doing what? Marrying, marrying the women from the land instead of marrying their own, their own people. And, and, uh, and, 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 and God takes drastic action there to correct this problem of intermarrying. But it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We get into the New Testament and what does Paul tell us? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So what I want to suggest to you is that the understanding that the sons of men, the sons of God here in this passage are the righteous line fits so well and so practically with this whole theme that is woven all the way through Scripture, that the sons of God, the people of faith, are prohibited from marrying outside of the faith. Now, I know that, that, that when a young person falls in love and they're all excited, you know, they can think of all kinds of reasons why in their case there should be an exception made. And we can even look at some examples in Scripture where God had grace in the case of an exception. Ruth would be a classic example. But we should remember that her Israelite husband died in order for grace to be extended to Ruth. And, and Ruth had apparently adopted the faith. Yeah. So, uh, so this, this issue about the, the, the marrying outside of the faith is to God a very critical issue. And it is so important, we, understand, we come to understand now, it's so important that we see that God gives it as one of the two causes for the corruption of the world that necessitated the flood. That's how serious it is. 
in the two things he details, one is the sons of men marrying the daughters of uh, sons of God marrying the daughters of men. The second thing being this issue of the Nephilim, these mighty men of old. Okay, those are the two things that led to the corruption of the world that necessitated the flood. And what we understand from this is that the world is wicked and it's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, we know that. Okay, we know the pagan are out there and they're pagan and they're going to act like pagans and we shouldn't expect anything more from them because they are pagans. But we who are of the people of God, we who are people of faith, we must walk pure and holy before God and we must do everything we can to ensure that we raise up a righteous seed, that we raise up a righteous line. So we need to do everything in our power to ensure that our progeny, that our children walk in the faith. And one of the most crucial decisions and whether or not a person is going to remain true to God is whether or not he or she will marry in the faith. Now, that's not to say that everybody who marries out of the faith, and there are many who are, it's not to say that everybody who marries out of the faith will ultimately become like Solomon. I mean, he had 900 of them. So, you know, he had special problems. But uh, just a second, I'll get to you. Uh, but, the, but the point is that as a general pattern, what is clear is that when men and women were marry outside of the faith, that the effect is almost always devastating to their lives, to their family's life, and to the life of the culture. Now, you had a question? Yeah. The Bible makes no mention about the daughters of God. So you then underline the assumption that the daughters of God also marry the sons of men? Uh, well, that's a good question. I, yeah, it doesn't say, does it? So I, I, I don't know that. I don't know that. I wouldn't know how to answer that question. I think there is. Because if the daughters of the daughters of God marries the sons of God. Mm-hmm. There's and no problem. Her, but in the end, the blood comes. Not just on the very Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Good. Yeah. I I think that's a that's a possibility. Yeah. I because it doesn't say we're you know we we kind of be arguing on the basis of silence. But but uh, I would assume that if the sons of God were marrying the daughters of men, that it was probably working the other way around too. Yeah, probably was. Yeah. Good question. Okay. Well, that's the first problem. The second problem is these uh, Nephilim. Uh, hold on just a second here. Uh, before we get to the Nephilim, though, let me point out to you what it says in verse 3. In fact, we're not going to get to the Nephilim today. I'm sorry. <clears throat> in verse 3, he says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Well, if you thought verse 2 was hard, verse 3 is just as hard. Okay. <clears throat> but to cut to the chase, uh, God interjects here at this point, after this discussion of, of what the sons of God have done. And as we go on down through the transition, we'll see the impact of that and the Nephilim, the impact of these two factors on the course of the direction of mankind on the earth and it eventually ends up with the whole earth being corrupted and there's, there's nobody left righteous except for Noah and uh, presumably some, but not all, within his own family. 
Okay, <clears throat> So those are the only righteous ones left. And so God looks on the consequences of this tragic, cataclysmic conduct on the part of the people of God that they have compromised their holiness and they have compromised their walk and they have intermarried with the pagans. And he says, my spirit will not always strive with man because he also is flesh. Now, these are, as I said, very complex ideas. Uh, some of the words here are so ancient, it's very hard for us to know exactly what, what they mean. But it appears, uh, and most commentators are in agreement, that at least this much is clear, that what God is saying is that, uh, and it translates the word here, contend, it says, my spirit will not always contend. The idea could mean to plead, to be with, to dwell with. It could have a variety of nuances to it. But the idea is that man lives by the presence of the Spirit of God. We discovered that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? We discovered that God breathed into man his breath and that gave man life. And God is saying now that man because of the course of direction that the earth has taken, that he will no longer allow his spirit to live with man forever. But his days will be 120 years on the earth. Now, there are two possible ways to see that. One is that the 120 years is a reference to the lifespan of man. We've just gone through this genealogy where men were living seven, eight, nine hundred years. <clears throat> okay. And so now the suggestion is that God is saying, okay, man's only going to live 120 years from now on. Okay. That's one impossible term. The other possible interpretation is that mankind as a whole only has 120 years left before I'm going to bring judgment. Okay, that's the other possible interpretation. As to the first interpretation, it doesn't make sense to me. I'll just be honest with you. It doesn't make sense to me. <clears throat> because if we say that God is saying man will only live to be 120 years, when in history has that been the case? Right after the flood... Noah still lives to be 900 years. And then slowly over a period of time, the lifespan of men is shortened till we get to Abraham. And I believe Abraham is 175 years. Okay, This is 10 generations after the flood. This is 10 generations after God says man will only live 120 years. Okay, <clears throat> we, Actually, we have to get clear up to Moses before we find anybody who lives 120 years. And then his lifespan continues to get shorter and shorter. So that a few weeks ago, or a week ago or so, I heard on the news of some woman who they said was the oldest woman alive on the earth just passed away just a week or so ago, and she was 114 years old. Okay. And she just had her birthday. Okay. So I would suggest to you that if that's what God was saying, we sure don't see it, do we? We don't see it. The other problem is, what God says is, I'm not going to let man live what? Well, before that, he says, he says, my, my spirit will not always, what? Dwell with man or contend with man, what? Forever. Okay. Well, if he's talking about lifespan, we already know that. Right? I mean, that's the whole point of the curse. God already established that, that we were all going to die, okay? that we're not going to live forever. So it doesn't make any sense for him to, to, to be talking about lifespan here because that's already been established. There's no judgment there. There's nothing new there. Okay. The second thing is, notice how he says in New American, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless. 
My spirit will not always strive with man. My spirit will not strive with man forever. I'm done with man. I'm not going to go on. I'm not going to do this forever. Nevertheless, his days on the earth shall be 120 years. What I understand that he's saying is, I'm not going to put up with this forever. Mankind has gotten so evil and so wicked, I'm not going to put up with this forever. Nevertheless, I'll give him another 120 years. And so I understand what God is saying there is that judgment is going to come. And it's going to come in 120 years from this pronouncement. Okay. Well, we're, we're out of time and we're just getting started here. So this is good because I'm not going to have any next week to prepare for another lesson anyway. So I've already got this one prepared <laughs> since i got a wedding coming up. But... But one of the things that struck me as I studied this lesson is to understand how important for our world it is that the people of God live like the people of God. Because I really think that our world in many ways is as wicked now as it was in the days of the flood. And so the question is, why did God judge the world then and why is he not judging now? I mean, I know he promised that he wouldn't. But, I mean, there are, there are clearly places, I think, in the world today where things are absolutely as wicked and violent as they were in the days of Noah. And I believe the reason is because there is a righteous generation that is holding the fort. That is that, uh, how, does, how does Paul say it in Timothy? That it's that, it's that uh, restraining force. The Spirit of God working through the people of God who are not only holding the fort but increasing in number and have been doing so since shortly after the flood. The people of God increasing in number is the thing. Increasing in number, increasing in influence, and increasing in its righteousness is the very thing that stays the hand of God from judgment. And that's why it's important that you and I as parents and as grandparents influence our children, pass the faith on, and, and urge our children to marry in the faith. Okay? Well, we're out of time.